Welcome to the ninth episode of Ice Coffee. Today we're brewing up with a tale of dull but dogged competence. Englishman William Smith gained experience in high latitude sailing in the Greenland whale fishery. His skills as an ice pilot, someone able to read the pack and spot which leads will allow a ship to navigate safely and which are likely to become dangerous with a slight change in the wind, and even just his ability to differentiate between sea ice, icebergs and glaciers, set him apart from many southern ocean explorers of the era. While in charge of the Williams, sailing between Montevideo and Valparaiso in February 1819, Smith sighted uncharted land about 450 nautical miles south of Cape Horn. When he reported the sighting to Captain William Shereff, the Royal Navy's head man in Valparaiso, it was dismissed as ice mistaken for land, largely because Smith hadn't taken comprehensive soundings of the area to demonstrate the presence of a shallow continental shelf. Confident of his ability to tell the difference between ice and land, Smith sailed south again in May, but the wild weather of the Southern Ocean that late in autumn prevented his reaching that far south again, and the Williams was put about north, delivering its cargo to Montevideo and Buenos Aires. In the gossipy world of sailors in port, rumours of the discovery quickly circulated among American sealers, and Smith was offered large sums of money to supply the, as yet, unsubstantiated coordinates of his sighting. Smith refused, citing the good of his nation as his highest duty, and took on another cargo to take round the horn. He sailed the William South, determined to make a second sighting on a southern deviation in his route to Valparaiso. In calmer weather, the William sailed to the land and along its coast, sending a party ashore where a claiming ceremony was performed. He took soundings, finding the surrounding waters to be 40 fathoms deep, but this evidence of a coastal shelf was superfluous now his crew could state they had been ashore and present specimens gathered while there. I suspect he just wanted to stick it to Sheref. Here's your soundings, and I'll throw in this seal skin and a penguin egg. Believe in my land sighting yet? The claiming ceremony comprised planting a board painted with the Union flag and inscribed with the details of the visit in the ground and giving three cheers. I laugh along to Eddie Izzard's description of flag-based territorial claims, but there really isn't much more to it than he speaks of in his stand-up routine. Smith called his discovery New South Britain, demonstrating all that is best in the imaginative tradition of British colonial neology and reflecting his belief that the land was continental and greater in scale than New South Wales. While incorrect on this matter, the second visit did confirm that the coast and nearby islands were home to abundant fur seals. What Smith didn't know was that it's likely the Dutchman Dirk Gerritz, sailing on the Blytschebootscher and blown far off course, likely sighted the place in 1599 and American sealers most likely made lucrative and furtive visits to its shores prior to his claiming ceremony. But seeing something and standing on something, and not telling anyone, as discussed in episode 4, are different to claiming to be the first to be there, and providing compelling evidence of same. 
So Smith gets historical credit for being the first to make a landing and the first to plant a flag, though not a very fluttery one. Reaching Valparaiso in November, Smith reported to Captain Thomas Searle of the Hyperion. Searle took Smith's claim seriously and immediately commissioned him to return south on behalf of the Royal Navy. The Navy put Edward Bransfield in charge of the Williams and under Smith's pilotage he charted the coast and made an official claim, very similar in method to that which Smith's first mate had already overseen, but better, because it was all naval and stuff. And you've got to admit, a board with the Union flag and three cheers doesn't mean snuff unless it's done by a government official. I mean, where would we be if just anyone could say the magic words and wave the magic painted lump of wood and suddenly own an entire continent? Bransfield also named many local landmarks on his chart, a practice common to exploratory voyages at the time, partly as such a taxonomy could act as an aid to navigation, and partly because names, if widely adopted, can add a frisson of credibility to territorial claims in subsequent legal wrangling over resources. I'm not joking. This is how empires were made at the grassroots level, and we can expect repeat performances as we explore Mars and Europa, and anywhere else humanity seeks to go boldly, with their infinitives intact. Bransfield's orders stated that they should sail east and determine whether or not this landmass was contiguous with Cook's Sandwich Land, because while Bellingshausen had already determined that was an island cluster, the news had not gotten out because the cell phone coverage of the area was pants. Bransfield's orders also stated that any ships he encountered in the area should be informed of the British claim, and that if their exploration should take longer than six months, they were to return to England immediately and inform no one of their discoveries while in ports en route. Smith and Bransfield sailed on east, charting islands until pack ice in what we now call the Weddell Sea prevented further progress. A British engineer based in Chile published an inaccurate account of their discoveries in British newspapers, reporting abundant seals, whales, otters and trees akin to the Norway pine. Spurious otter spotting aside, the engineer, John Mears, placed value on the landmass as a base for British fishing fleets operating in the Pacific and as a port through which to coordinate and defend trade with South America. Sadly for these ambitions, the climate was nowhere near as clement as Mears hoped, and the treeless islands went unsettled. Returning to Valparaiso in April 1820, Bransfield and Smith, whose crew were forbidden to go ashore in an attempt to avoid rousing Chilean interest in the explored area, filed the voyage documents with Captain Searle. Searle changed the name of the discovered land from New South Britain to New South Shetland, because reasons. Smith immediately turned south again and headed to the newly renamed New South Shetland, whaling and sealing in mind. He arrived, and so did 20 other vessels, news of abundant seals having gotten out in the meantime when the American ship, the Herzilia, captained by James Sheffield, brought 9,000 sealskins to port. More about the Herzilia in episode 10. British and American sealing teams competed on shore, often clashing, presaging the tensions dollar interests in the south would generate. Smith's seal hunt was successful, but on returning to Britain, the ship and its cargo were impounded, 
as Smith's financial backers were in debt too deep to dig themselves clear. Unable to reap his share of the rewards, Smith went on to die a poor man, setting the mould for many future Antarctic explorers. Charts of New South Shetland became widely available, and the seal boom was on. But for how long? <laughs>